So it's very simply, we've got four points this morning, and we're going to start off with the first one, the widow's offering. And I just want to go through the story. I want us to make sure we have this story in, in our mind's eye accurately. This event happened in the last week of Jesus' ministry before his death and resurrection. Now, you can argue a little bit about the timing of this, but most people would say that Jesus was probably anointed by Mary when he was having the the meal at Lazarus on the Saturday or the Sunday. The reason that there's a bit of uh, discretion there is because we like to think of Jesus arriving to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Uh, It's more than probable he arrived on the Monday. But let's not be too fussy about this. Let's just think this is the last week, the build-up, the lead-up to Jesus' death and resurrection. After his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he uh, goes back into Jerusalem the following day, and on, on the way there, there is this fig tree, and the fig tree has not got fruit on it, and the fig tree is cursed, and Jesus clears the temple, and then goes back out, and then comes back into Jerusalem the next morning. And that's the morning that we are looking at. And on the way into Jerusalem, that the disciples see that fig tree that Jesus had cursed the previous day, and it's dried up. Anyway, as they come in, they go into the temple, and this morning, the Jews are out to get Jesus. The authority of Jesus is questioned, and we can see that in all the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then Jesus speaks a parable of two sons in Matthew, and then there's a parable of the tenants and the the, the story of the stone that the builders rejected. And then we see that the leaders are offended and they're they're upset. And then in Matthew, we have a parable of the wedding banquet. And then after this, what we see is an intense sort of scrutiny of Jesus by the Jews. They come and question him. There's questions about taxes. There's question about the resurrection. There's a question about the greatest commandment. And then Jesus brings his own question, his own statement about who the Son of Christ is. And then separate to those accounts that are in all the synoptic Gospels, we have seven woes proclaimed in Matthew in chapter 23. Jesus is telling the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, exactly what God thinks of them. And then in contrast to what he thinks of them, he he laments about Jerusalem after he has mentioned these seven woes. And then the passage that we are going to be concentrating on, the part of Scripture that we're looking at, is what comes then. And that's what we know as the widow's offering, which we find in both Mark and in Luke, but not in the Matthew account Now, Jesus is there in the temple, and it's at the time of feast, so it's packed. There's lots of people around, and he's being quizzed by these different Jewish groups. It's not because they wanted to learn. They didn't want to gain knowledge from Jesus. They wanted to trip him up. They wanted to cause him problems. But their plans didn't work, because Jesus was way too wise for them. 
And not only was he way too wise for them, as, as I said earlier from Matthew 23, Jesus effectively rips out this special seven-point sermon of woes, especially for them. And if at some time you read that seven-point sermon of woes, you should be in no doubt of why the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Because he pricked their conscience and he showed them exactly what they were like and what their hearts were like and that they were far from Jesus and far from the Lord God. Now Mark, in his account of this, tells us exactly where Jesus is. He, he tells us that he uh, is, sits down opposite the treasury. Now, the, the temple had many little aspects to it. There was the, the holiest of holies, where, where the ark and the tablets and the, and the, and the, the, the great sacrifices were, well, they weren't brought, they were done in the outside, but that was the holy of holies where the high priest went in once a year. There was the curtain separating and then there was the area where they, they did the sacrifices and made the, uh, made the special uh, parts of atonement. And then you came out to a, a court that was for the men. And then outside of that court, there was this court of the woman. Uh, but also within the court of the woman, there was the treasury. And this is where Jesus was. He was seeing the treasury. Now, the treasury was where they collected the collections. And they... they they had this ability to collect the collections in a special way. Uh, and when you look back into the Old Testament, you don't find this instruction of these things to be there, but they found themselves there. And so in Jesus' time, in the treasury, or above the treasury, in the court of the woman, there was 13 offering stations 13 places where you could make your offerings, you could drop your tithes, you could drop your offerings. And they were designed in this special way that there was this sort of big trumpet-shaped bronze funnel. And so you could throw your coins into this funnel and then it would rattle its way down into the box, into the treasury. Now... I don't know if you've had the embarrassment of dropping money onto a metal subject surface, but it makes a noise. This whole process was designed for noise. It was designed for showing off. Yeah? Now, whether that was the person's intent in the beginning, it certainly was what came of it. And so there would be a whole lot of noise in this place, and the noise would be the rattling of money. Now, I'm sure none of you have gone to the casinos in Cyprus. But I'm sure you've seen a casino image in a film. And you have someone who gets the jackpot, and you hear the noise and all that money and cash coming out of the machine. This is the kind of noise that was going on in the temple. And so these rich guys were coming forward as Jesus was watching and they were putting in their money and putting in noisily. And you could hear the money rattling around. And the longer the rattling was going on, the more money was going in. And, and so maybe it was just a little bit like this. You Nigerians, I don't know if it's his culture in other parts of Africa, but it's certainly in Nigeria. 
the wedding. The couple are dancing. And what happens? The big man comes, doesn't he? And what does he have in his left hand? And what's he doing with his thumb? <laughs> He's spraying the money out over the dancing couple, yes? Uh, whether he's saying, I want to bless the married couple, or whether he's wanting to say, look at me, you can be the judge. But this is the kind of thing that was going on in the temple. This is what was happening. This is what the, the default was, that the, the rich were coming in with their money bags, and the rich were coming in, and they were making a big rattle of it. And, and you could hear it rattling, rattling, and you'd look, wow, look at that guy. He's put in lots of money. And as they are watching, as Jesus is watching, we're not told what the heart of these people are like. And very often they're judged for showing off, as I've sort of mentioned, but we don't know where their heart was. But we certainly know they weren't giving in secret, which is Jesus' teaching. We've seen that, haven't we, over the last couple of weeks. Now, there's a, there's a stark contrast. And there's almost a gasp around the place because there's been all this noise and concophony of noise of the rich people going up and throwing their coins in. And then there's just a ting-ting. Barely even that as two tiny little copper coins hit the copper trumpet. And in an instant, in a second, it's gone. And the widow puts in two small copper coins. We we don't know how much the rich contributed. We know it was much, but we don't know in, in money terms what it was. But we are told that there was two small copper coins. In fact, we know from the the language, we know from the uh, books, that this is uh, a coin known as a lepta, or a mite. And and it it can be hard for us to get a grasp of what the value of that is. And and it's, it's helpful for us to understand this. Now, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 6, Jesus again is speaking, and he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? So we're getting a valuation here. Five sparrows. Do you know what a sparrow is? A little little bird, yes? A little tiny bird. So you get five sparrows for two pennies. But these pennies were not the widow's penny. These were a sera, and a sera were worth eight lepita. So one of these two pennies is worth eight of what the widow put in. So this means the widow didn't have enough money to buy one sparrow. I think this is kind of giving us an idea of of what it's about. Or to see it in another way, we we, we know that uh, a denarius was a day's wage. And there's a denarius mentioned a little bit early in the passage with regard to the the tax that was being paid, and that had a Caesar's head on it. And so if you worked for a day, you could get yourself a denarius. Now, a denarius was made up of one 
128 of the widow's coins. 128 of her coins were needed to make a day's wage. So, thinking in, in Cypriot terms, thinking of Cyprus, maybe you can command a daily wage of 250 liras. That means this lady gave less than 40L. Now, the reality is the small amount of her gift isn't the issue. Yeah? We need to bear in mind it was about 40L. Yeah? What, what can we get with 40L? We, can't get, we certainly can't get a chicken. You can't get a sparrow. There's not a lot that you can get with 40L. But the, the, the thing is this. The small amount of her gift is not the issue. So the issue is that it was all that she had. Mark 12, the end of verse 44. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. All she had to live on was four liras. All she had in her account as her possessions was four liras. I don't know if you've been down to your last four liras, but that is where she is. I know that when I was a student, I know that when I was in my early days of working, that sometimes you got towards the end of the month and you didn't have much any money left for the month. But you always knew that payday was coming. And maybe even though you knew that payday was coming, there was some money or something hidden away, yes? She didn't have credit on her mobile phone. She didn't have the ability to just go to the ATM and get some money out. This 4TL, this two pennies, was all she had. She gave everything. And it's emphasized by the words, all she had to live on. And Jesus sees the blatantly obvious contrast. The rich givers were there, and their money was rattling down, making a huge noise. And there was this widow who just puts in four lira, two copper coins, and, and he looks at this, and he sees this blatant contrast, but his analysis is staggering. Ten times in, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus uses this word, truly, truly. And he's wanting to get the listener's attention. And he's speaking to those around, and maybe they've caught onto the spectacle, and, and maybe some people were sort of giggling to themselves. Oh, look at that. And then he's saying, truly. Listen, listen, listen to what I'm going to say now. I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Jesus says something staggering here, doesn't he? It's mathematically incorrect. It's economically incorrect. But Jesus goes on to justify his statement. You see, the two little pennies looked like nothing. And the great monies that the others put in was a lot 
And Jesus says, she's put in more than the others. In fact, you could, you could read it that she's put in more than all of them contributed together, if you like. And he goes on in verse 44, he says, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see, that the value of her giving wasn't measured in the monetary value, the, the two coins or the 4TL in our minds. But it was valued in what her giving meant. And her giving meant 100%. It was everything. She gave everything. Now, now, we don't know what percentage the others gave of their abundance. They had much, and they gave much. Elon Musk, we've probably heard of him. Currently the world's richest man. Apparently he has one, no, he has 11.3 million in cash. Yeah? I don't know which bank it's in, or whether it's under his mattress, but he has 11.3 billion in cash. And assuming that he wrote the check out and put it in the offering box, that doesn't get anywhere close to this widow. 11.3 billion would only be about 5% of his net worth. You see, for him to match the widow's giving, he would have to give 224 billion to get to 100%. She gave everything. Now, the big question is what does this story teach us? Does God want you to give everything right now? Does God want us to follow this widow's example? Now, now this morning, as we carry on, I want to bring three views of what this teaching is. I want to bring a traditional view. I want to bring an unconventional view. And I want to bring a Christ-centered view. You see, the traditional view, and most people, and most times you'll have heard this sermon and heard this passage preached on and, and delivered on, is, you, is you'll be told that this is all about a message of sacrificial giving. And, and for sure, this widower did give, this widow lady did give sacrificially, unequivocally. That, that's, there's no doubt about that. See, most scholars agree that there is a lesson on giving here. But it seems like there's many different lessons on giving. And, and, and none of them can really ever totally agree on what the real lesson is. So, so let me give you a flavor. And maybe you've heard it said like this before. The, the true measure of a gift is by proportion, not by addition. What's been said there? It, it's about how much of what you have that's given rather than the actual amount. 
So the Elon Musk situation is there. He, he only gives 5% if he gives all his cash. But if someone else gave 20 liras, 100 liras, they may be giving 20, 30% of all that they have. Who knows? And, and so some people teach that the, 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 the lesson that we have here, it's all about our proportion of our giving. How much of our income are we giving? How much of our assets are we giving? Or, or you could put it another way, the true measure of a gift is what is left over, what's been kept back. So if you've been very generous and given two million, but you've kept back a billion for yourself, you haven't been generous. But if you've given a hundred lira and all that you've got is 500 lira, you've been extremely generous. Or, or some people say that the true measure of a gift is the sacrifice that's involved. What a great sacrifice this lady did. She, everything, she just put everything in the offering. And it was little, but it was everything. The true measure of a gift is the percentage of self-denial. It's a similar sort of concept. How much of my asset, how much of my income, how much am I giving up? Or, or perhaps it's like this. We, we hear that the, the true measure of the gift is the attitude that you give it. The widow must have had the best attitude because she gave the most in Jesus' eyes. And so it's about our attitude. And our attitude has to be giving the most. And giving the most is giving sacrificially. And we have to give sacrificially. And it keeps coming back to this traditional message of sacrificial giving. Some people took it a little bit further and says the true measure of a gift is when you give everything and then take a vow of poverty. I'm not, I'm not sure how well that teaching goes down these days. But in history it's been there. And in, in some churches around the world, possibly not in churches where there is real poverty, but in some parts of the world people will see this as being godly and, and, and righteous and, and, the, and the right way forward and we, we give everything away and we, we live in poverty. Another commentator said that a true gift should only be given to the church. You shouldn't give money anywhere else but to the church because that's what the widow is doing. And the widow gave everything to the church and so you need to give everything to the church. Another lesson, Jesus was watching. Jesus was watching what was going on here, wasn't he? He was there watching and so... Whenever you go to the offering box, Jesus is watching. Watching and judging. Watching and judging whether you're doing a lot or a little. And unless you do a lot like I tell you to, well, you know where that's going, don't you? The story is sandwiched between the ugliness of religion. We've seen here what the scribes and the Pharisees are like. And we go on to see what's going to happen to the temple. And there in the middle of this ugliness, there is this beautiful example of, of, of true worship in the midst of false worship. And, and these are some of the traditional teachings that we get from this passage. And I think that the, some of these some of these points have, have, have real value and, and some of them have real truth, but I'm not sure that's what the passage is all about. And I must confess, I've really, really, really struggled with this this last week. 
I, I, I was preparing the previous week's sermon. I wanted to mention this. I thought, no, there's a sermon in here. I'll come back to that. We'll have this as a separate one. And this last week, I've almost regretted it. Because as I've been going through this with my idea that this is all about sacrificial giving, I'm thinking, is it really? Is this really what Jesus was endeavoring to teach at that moment? Now, these things are important, and sacrificial giving is good. I'm not going to knock that. Jesus expects us to give, don't we? We got that from Matthew 6, too, the previous time. Jesus wants us to give for the right reasons. Jesus wants us to give to the needy. Matthew 6 again. Our giving will be blessed. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Our giving must be willing. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Our giving must be done within our means. 2 Corinthians 8, 12. Our giving should be cheerful. 2 Corinthians 9 and 7. And and we don't know if this widow was doing this willingly. We, We don't know if this widow was doing it within her means. Well, it certainly seems like she wasn't. Was this a great act of faith? I don't know. We don't know. Was this widow giving this money cheerfully? We we don't know. God's word is absolutely silent on these things. And so I'm scratching my head. And I'm thinking, what, what what is going on here? In some ways, I don't think that this traditional view fits in with these other principles from God's word we've been looking at. So so what is going on? You see, Jesus, as he tells this story, he never tells us that her attitude is good and the rich people's attitude is bad. Not directly. We we can infer that. We can can sort of bring that out ourselves, can't we? We can think that that's what's being said. He, He doesn't tell her that her faith is rewarded. We don't even know what's going to happen to her next. We, we, we can see it in our mind's eye leaving with nothing, but we, we don't know if there was some great miracle, some great provision. We don't know if she went back to her family and had a nice cup of soup and carried on life and then went and did some more begging and got some more... We don't know. God's word is silent. Jesus doesn't say, and there my disciples go and do likewise. Give everything. In fact... You think to myself, why is it there? What is this? What is the teaching that's that's coming on here? Jesus does not explicitly make any of these points that we infer from this message traditionally. Now, now I do think that there is a, a case where sacrificial giving is good, and we should be generous, and we should be cheerful. And then we could argue that some of these things are actually inferred. But some people take this application and take this further, and and they come to this sort of statement, it's not true giving unless it hurts. Have you heard that? Have you had sort of notions of that proclaimed to you? And that's certainly what's proclaimed by someone at the front who's wanting to collect your money for his or her pocket. You see, this passage is, is, is taken on and it's further abused. And you, you've probably heard of a gentleman, well, you've probably heard of a man called Benny Hinn. And on his website, he's quoted on this passage by placing two seemingly insufficient coins in the treasury box. She secured a future for herself and her loved ones. 
prosperity. Her amazing faith and power of giving with a violent, unstoppable faith. Now it's your time. Give me what is in your hand. Your time of favor has come. Donate now. Is that what this passage is saying? And this passage has been taken, and, and this, this, this notion of sacrificial giving, which in, in, in the one hand I'm not saying is wrong, but when it's taken incorrectly, what people do with this passage is put you under a yoke that's not there. God wants you to be a cheerful giver. God wants you to give within your means. God wants you to give willingly. God wants you to give because Jesus gave so much to us. And so now I want us to just sort of park that for a moment. And I want to move to what I call an unconventional view. And whenever we look at God's word, it's so important to see it in its context. And I think this traditional view comes out of just focusing in those verses. And we can see that just in those verses. But what's going on around here? If you just go to the verses the other side of it. And, and uh, I've, I've got the quote here from Luke, but it's pretty much the same as, as, as the Mark one. But Jesus is speaking, and he says in Luke 20, uh, 46, or the, the parallel passage in, in Mark is, is Mark 12 and, and 38. And he says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogue, and the places of honor at the feast, who devour widows' houses. And for pretense, make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. And then we have the story we looked at. And immediately after that, they're coming out of the temple. And as they're coming out of the temple, someone looks at, 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 at this temple and says, look at, look at this temple. Look at how amazing it is. Look at, look at what's on uh, around it. And as they look at the temple... And look at the wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and what wonderful offerings. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the passage before talks about devouring widows. And the passage after talks about the temple and how it's adorned with noble stones and with offerings. And sandwiched there in the middle is this little story of this widow. And I think what we're seeing here is an object lesson and how the religious leaders of that day devoured widows' houses. You see, this widow gave everything. And again, we don't know what motivated her giving. 
But we do know from the passage of Scripture here that there must have been pressure put upon these widows by these scribes who were swanning around, looking wonderfully religious, looking very, very special. And they were preying upon the vulnerable, and they were preying upon the poorest of the poor. And the poorest of the poor in that day, in that society, was the widow. And the widows, in God's word, should have been protected. And the widows should have been cared for. And these men who are meant to be the religious, that those that are meant to be looking after the people's spiritual well-being were those who were devouring widows. And then for pretense, they were making long prayers. And just a little while earlier, we see Jesus coming into the temple and turning it over and saying, this is a den of thieves, and scattering the money changing, and scattering this thing. And this noble building adorned with noble stones and made out of the offerings had had lost what it was meant to be. And here, in the middle of this, we have a contrast of this widow who's willing to give everything and wicked, wicked men who were willing to take everything from her. Self-serving deception and hypocrisy. And rather than the the responsibility that these Jewish folk had before God to treat their poor widows with kindness, with respect, with help, instead these scribes, these Pharisees, squeezed the money out of them on the false pretense. And mark the difference of this rottenness as to what happened in the first church. The early church, the early church as we read of in Acts, what did they do there? They gave so that they could look after each other. What did they do there? They looked after the widows. What was one of the first problems within the church that needed sorting out was the fact that some widows were getting a collection and others weren't. And they were taking care of the widows. And as we were going through the church life and, and looking into the passage uh, in 1 Timothy, we're seeing there again how it is important to look after the widows. And this is an important part of our church and it's an important part of our faith and they had got it so, so wrong. And friends, this has sadly happened throughout history. Just before the Reformation, the the, the church, the established church then, was selling indulgences. It was tricking and duping people into believing that their loved ones were in some form of awful purgatory. And the only way of getting them out was by paying money. And if you pay money to the church and and the priest or whoever writes an indulgence, says a prayer, then your loved one, your loved one who's stuck there, will get a little bit freer, a little bit quicker. And the church was ripping money out of people. And right now it is happening with the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is shedding the lie. And all it's doing is wanting to take money from people to make the leaders of it rich. The church isn't to prey on the vulnerable. The church is to protect them. And and think of the real, real, real financial challenges you have in a country like Nigeria. People, People are struggling to work. People are struggling to make ends meet. It is hard and it is difficult. And coming back to that Forbes list of the the ten richest pastors in the world, five of them come from Nigeria. And these wicked men are preying on widows and orphans. 
And these wicked men are doing what made Christ upset. Because just before this, he takes these woes out. And I think we need some woes to be said against this prosperity preaching. Because it's cheating people of the true gospel that releases people from this sinful mess and gives them a hope of heaven. And it robs them of that and it says, give us money and we'll make you rich. And when you don't get rich, you're told it's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't do it right or whatever else. And it is wrong and it is sinful and it needs to be called out. Just as it was called out back then, Christ called it out, I believe, and we should call it out. But you know what, friends? It is really, really easy for me and you to point at other broken churches, isn't it? And say, oh, the prosperity is awful. Oh, they've got it wrong. See, friends, we need to come back and we need to look at ourselves and we need to ask ourselves the question, are our lives giving and helping the needy? Because if we are not doing that, we're as bad as those scribes and Pharisees. And the woe should come down upon us. We have a responsibility given to us by God to take care of those around about us. And we need to ask ourselves a question, are we doing this? Are we giving as we should be? Are we looking out to help the needy? I think, friends, we have a lot more to do. God willing, over the next while, we'll be able to develop that and grow that. We can all individually ask ourselves the question, are we giving right? It's so easy to point the finger and say they're giving wrong. It's so easy to point the finger and say they are stealing and ripping others off. We should be pointing the fingers to ourselves at this moment and asking ourselves, are we giving right? Are we giving right You see, Jesus expects us to give. He wants us to give for the right reasons. He tells us to give to the needy. Our giving will be blessed, not necessarily a material blessing, but it will be blessed because his kingdom will come. Our giving must be willing. It must be within our means. It should be cheerful. These are all things. Are we doing it or are we just pointing at others and saying they got it wrong? But the final thought that I would like to put to you to bring this and this series to a close is a Christ-centered view. We don't know the motive of this widow. We don't know if she's being compelled by wicked men. We don't know if it was out of a love for God that she did this. But we do know that she gave everything. And we we mustn't take that away from her. And and, and in all reality, it was probably a huge act of faith on her part. But we shouldn't be looking at her. She's not center stage. We, We need to look at Christ. You see, she gave up everything. But Christ, the true giver, the ultimate giver, came to this world to give up Everything. We don't know what happened to this widow. We don't know how she lived or died due to her giving. We don't know what went on. But we do know what happened to Christ when he gave up everything. He gave up the riches of heaven and came to this world. He left glory and was born of a virgin into this world. Born like any other human being. Born and then laid in a manger because there was no room for him. 
His parents were poor. His, his, his family was working class. He lived in obscurity. From glory to being a carpenter. And as he lived in this world, he lived a perfect life. He was sinless. And the wages of sin is death. And Jesus' sinless life meant that he did not deserve to die. And yet Christ gave up his life and he died on the cross. His life wasn't taken from him. His life was given up. He gave everything. And in giving up his life, he didn't just give up his life, but he took on himself our sin. In England, we have a problem sometimes in our housing market. It's called negative equity. What it means is you buy a house, say, for £100,000, and the market drops, and your house is then worth 50000 You've got negative equity of 50000 You've lost money, yes? Here is Jesus, and not only is he given everything up, coming down from heaven to here, but he takes on negative equity. He takes on the burden of our sin. He takes on the very thing that God cannot look at. And he takes it on, and he doesn't just take it on. He says, I am going to be punished for this in your stead. He paid the penalty that we deserved. Christ the giver gave everything and took our sins so that we can be everything in him, so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can be made right with God. And friends, that should motivate our giving. Why do we give? To make a noise and a trumpet when the pennies go down? No, we give because Christ has given us everything. You see, in fact, Christ shouldn't just motivate our giving. Christ should motivate our living. And the fact our giving shouldn't be motivated by the generosity of a widow, but our giving should be motivated for our love for a Savior. A Savior who gave everything. See, Mark records the words of Jesus earlier that day. And he's been challenged, what is the greatest commandment? And if you just flick back in Mark to verse 29, Jesus answers, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And friends, that's it. This is how we have a right attitude to money. This is how we have a right attitude to giving. This is what we do. We love the Lord our God with all our heart. And how can we do that? Because he first loved us. Because he sent his only son to die on the cross so that we could be brought into his family. And when we're loving the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, with all our mind, our money, our giving, and our living will be right. And we'll be looking after our neighbors ourselves. And we'll be taking care of the widows and the orphans. You see, when we do that, we get it all right. And so that's the question I need to ask you now. Not is, have you got your giving right? Not, have you got your money right? Not, are you budgeting correctly? Not, are you earning friends? Do you love the Lord your God? 
with all your heart? Has Christ's love stolen your heart and given it to God? Do you know Christ's love for yourself? If you don't, now is the time to ask God to show you Christ and enable you to call upon his name and you will be saved. Let's pray. Almighty God, we live in a world that is loveless and sin-filled. But we also live in a world where your love wins and conquers all. And Almighty God, we pray that you would come now and pour out your Spirit upon us and help each and every one of us here to love you, the Lord our God, with all our heart with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. And in doing that, Heavenly Father, we know that you will help us with our money. You will help us with our giving. You will help us with our living, because we will be living and giving and working as you would have us to do, powered by your love. Oh Lord God, forgive us for anything you see amiss, and help us to have that right attitude. And may your name be glorified now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.